or if you're a first-time listener, welcome aboard. I'm your host, Aiden, and we're here for another exciting episode of the Push-Pull Factor, the podcast where we hear real migration stories from real people. Now, I know it's been a little bit, but, you know, things get hectic, life gets busy, but what I love about hosting this podcast is that I learn so much, like, not only about the people that I interview, but I also learn a lot about the countries that they come from and the countries that they've traveled through. And I also learn a little more about the history and the society and the culture behind, you know, migration decisions in the country that they come from and different conflicts that exist. I just feel more knowledgeable about the world. And honestly, unfortunately, there are quite a lot of scenarios where people are fleeing quite gruesome things like persecution, crime, war, etc. Today's episode is no different. You actually may remember learning a little bit about Rwanda and the Rwandan genocide in school, at least it was in my curriculum. The ethnic tension between the Hutus and the Tutsis was something that I learned about, or maybe you watched the popular movie Hotel Rwanda that aired in the 90s. But regardless, both of those can only tell you so much about the situation. They can't show you the length of time that some of this went on. They can't show you the plight of individual peoples who are just, you know, they're massed together in the movie you see. You know, you see the killing field. You see so many people dying and suffering, but you don't know their individual stories. You don't know their individual plights. You don't know their names. Like, these movies and the textbooks, they can't show you what entire generations have suffered through, but, and what they have survived, because they did persist nonetheless, just like our guest today, Ezra Quizara. So he definitely touches on the history of it all in the interview, and it's very exciting hearing his perspective. He lived through such a transformative time in Rwanda's history, you know, multiple civil wars, living in re- living in Uganda, repatriating back to Rwanda, and even his own interpretation of some of the tribal and ethnic tensions permeate the African continent are quite interesting, and you know, allow you to you know really learn about the geopolitical intricacies. So to provide a little more history. Everyone knows the genocide, but I think people fail to recognize that immediately beforehand, immediately after, you know, there were civil wars and the political lines were closely affiliated with ethnic ties. So the ethnic tensions were always, you know, there. It was a little bit, a little pernicious. And then the genocide really was what bubbled it over and made it quite intense. What really deteriorated the relationship dates back to colonial times. Shocker. Yeah, I know. But when the German and Belgian rulers, they really failed to understand the nuances of the relationship between the Tutsis and the Hutus. And they kind of just reinforced a power dynamic where there was no class mobility and the Tutsis were in power and, you know, they were clearly labeled, defined, and partitioned into their respective groups. So it was really creating this othering and dividing them more discreetly than what already existed, which set the boundaries for what was to come. After the colonial times ended, the Hutus managed to regain power due to having a bit of a majority and their way of rule was a definite push factor for many Tutsis because they left the country and this led to a civil war in the early 1990s. However, the UN tried to broker a peace agreement which you know, calmed things down and eventually led to an agreement and a government containing both Hutu and Tutsi represented in the government. However, things weren't great for long. Because in 1994, a plane carrying the Hutu president back from peace talks in Tanzania was shot down killing him and starting a series of events that would become to known as the catalyst for the Rwandan genocide. His death, being the president, led to the prime minister being in power automatically, but her reign was only 14 hours overnight, 
And before she could even give her address, it was blocked by the radio, and she was assassinated the next day in the UN compound. This was kind of a coordinated attack that led to many moderate politicians of all varieties, positions like, you know, Minister of Education, of Agriculture. You know, picture people like that were just getting massacred for their position in the government and their relation to politics. All in all, with this all bubbling over, this was what led to really the thick of it and the Rwandan genocide that we all know. And what's interesting about this genocide, I think that media played a big role and it's something that I uncovered in my research, but you know, many radio stations were prevalent in pushing forward certain messaging that promoted ethnic tensions and genocide. And it was something that I didn't know or that the power that the radio and the media had in causing this divide and reinforcing the messaging. And still today, Rwanda feels the impacts of the genocide. And these years of war are still felt that you can see it in the social strata. You can see which groups maintain power and still have power. You can see the impact in the Rwandan di diaspora, which is, you know, it's pretty widespread. You have the people who, you know, have left to Uganda and repatriated. You have people who are living all over the world now, not just on the African continent and in North America, but, you know, Europe, Antarctica, not Antarctica, <laughs> you know, Europe, Australia, Asia. Those are, you know, actual continents people live on. <laughs> But I don't want you to think that means Rwanda is in a, such a dire situation today. Because a lot of people like to think of African nations and African countries as struggling and, you know, poverty. But it is actually one of the fastest growing economies in Africa. And it is widely seen as a su success story in the international community, despite all of the things that Rwanda had to go through. But we have a lot to get into, a lot of history to dive into, and a lot of interesting things to learn about Rwanda in this interview. I'm so excited. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here with me today, I have Ezra, a musician who can sing and rap in a multitude of languages and has quite the story to tell that I'm excited to share with you all. Ezra, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to speak with you. So glad that you decided to come on the Push Pull Factor podcast. Thanks for having me and thanks for the invitation. Of course, and I'm just excited to get into it. But so let's start. Let's start with where in the world you were born and then where you currently live. I'll I'll start with where was I was born, which is uh, Namuongo. Namuongo, that's in the suburbs of Kampala. That's in Uganda, and Uganda you'll find Uganda in East Africa. Uganda is known as the pal the pal of Africa. <laughs> And most people know Uganda, but they know Uganda because of uh, Idi Amini. If you've ever ever watched a, the, that uh, a, a movie called "The Last The Last The Last uh, King of Scotland," okay, I've heard of it, but I haven't watched. Watched. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting movie to watch. So I was I was born uh, through uh, refugee parents. My parents are uh, left left to Rwanda. In, 19, in the 19, 1959, there was a tribal. There was a tribal war between the Tutsi and the Hutu. So they left when they were young. They, you know, met met in Uganda in the refugee camp. Got married. They had seven kids. I'm one of them. I'm the fourth. In 1994, we 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 ended up moving to. Uh, End of 1994, we, went, we moved back to Rwanda. Okay. So how old were you when you moved back to Rwanda? I was, I was, I was a teenager. I was, I was uh, uh, 14. 
Yeah, fourteen. But you know, it's like you know, as uh, I was, I was when when people ask me about my ch my childhood story, I was really emphasize on the part of being born in a foreign land, uh, being a refugee. You know, you you, you it's like you uh, that child, that child, what they lose, they lose uh, identity. You know, they lose identity. They don't know where, you know, how to. They, 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 they can, they can understand. They can, they, they can never live the life they feel inside. Or, or, or I would say they'll never feel like I belong. That's why after after the after the genocide, even though it was a really terrible, terrible genocide, you know, in a hundred days in Rwanda. Rwanda is the size of Vancouver Island. In the land, in the land size, and it had it. Uh, I, I, you can imagine having a million people dying in, in only t in a hundred days, in three months. So that means it took it took a country. It took it took Rwanda to to clean the dead bodies and other stuff. It took them almost almost ten years. They were still digging up mass graves and other stuff. But with me, with me, what made me move back to Rwanda? It was because I belong. I imagine it was a mess, disgusting, smelling. Oh, you know, I was like, I need to, I need to move back home, and that's why, that's why I started my my music career. So I guess what was the struggle with your identity? Was it like not feeling like you belonged in Uganda? You didn't speak that language. Was it like? The Hutu Titi divide. On top of that, like, what were some of the drivers? You think? Uh, the, the biggest, the biggest one, the the, the, the belong is that uh, you know when when you come from a really poor family, you one of the things that you you get as a as a kid, you'll be ashamed of yourself. You'll be ashamed of your family. <clears throat> and then another thing is uh, you know growing up in uh, in poverty. You know, it's it's like. Now, now, now. That's when I, I really kind of I try I try even to figure out like how, how did how did I survive? How did they, how did I live through? Like in Uganda, in Uganda, in, in in my childhood, I went through four civil wars. And when I'm talking about civil wars, it's like three months or six months of war, people running everywhere. You know, the government, you know, government throwing. I know. Add, you know, the government off. Uh, you know, presidents change. You know, presidents, kings, and all that stuff. So I, I went through that too. Uh, but inside me, you know, I knew. My, and I'm, I come from. A, I come from a family. I come from Randy's parents, and Randy's were known as refugees. So the easy way i can i can i can relate this to the like let's say to the us will be being being a slave being a child of a slave a refugee was like a slave i think i think even a, sla a slave a slave is a better a better word because a slave at least you have you work for someone you know you belong to someone they they will feed you because then you need to work but a refugee it's like you don't belong to you don't belong to anybody. 
they're kind of like they're kind of brothers and sister, a refugee and a slave. You know, that's a good distinction to bring up. I hadn't even thought about it in that way. I know, like, in Uganda specifically, is one of the countries with the most refugee population. So I'm sure it's, like, very dire and it's, like, registration problems. Yes. So you can imagine, uh, Uganda has 40, 48, 48 tribes. <clears throat> and now being a slave, <laughs> being, being a refugee in the 40, 48 tribes, that means you don't belong to any of those tribes. So as a, as a child, I had to learn more than 12 languages to hide, you know, at, at a young age, you have to learn how to speak the other language and you have to speak it well. And I'm talking about they so different, they're different dialects, the way you see French and English, they're not the same. So you can imagine 48 languages in the same in the same neighborhood in the same ghetto so you kind of you kind of you have to you have to you learn you learn how to survive at a young age that makes a lot of sense it's a lot definitely a lot to overcome i guess speaking a little more on the tribalism like how thick was the tension was it very interpersonal or was it more like a political like you know systemic level if when i talk about tribalism i, I you know a lot of lots lots of people when they talk when 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 they talk about racism, before I get into tribalism, I just want to mention this. Like when when people when 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 I moved here when I moved to North America this, uh, twelve years ago, I never understood why this this racism. Why do white people hate black people? Why do even some black people hate white people? You know. And it took me back to back to the roots, and I, 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 I tell people about how there's racism among the race. And before even that, there's tribalism, and tribalism it's about power. It's about I, I gotta take your land. That's how they survived. To grow when you have a tribe, you might you multiply. And the bigger the the you know, if when you're when you're on, on your own land and you don't have enough to feed your own, what they used to do, they used to they would, they would attack the next village. Take them in as their workers, which is called now slaves, in years later, you know. And they would kill. They would kill. They would kill men. Their target. Their target would be. You know. We, let's kill the men. Take over with the women. Marry the women. They, let, let their children work for us. So every tribe. Every tribe. Like one of my. my one of my. You know. I'm. Uh, one of my. One of my. Uh, favorite tribe. In, uh, in in Africa, there's so, there's so many tri tribes that I, I like, and the reason why I like them is because some of them, some of these tribes, they they fight for unity. Like when you when you hear about when you hear about Shaka Zulu, when you hear about uh, 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 Mutesa, you know the king of uh, Mutesa too, 
when you when you hear about the king the king of Zanzibar you know uh what's his name uh, Ahmad, Ahmad, Ahmad Abdul Abdul something there were some some tribes tribes that were like you know what we can be in this together we can work together we can trade but still because of trouble tri tribalism that's why it was so it, it was so it was so easy in, in uh, it was this no, I, I, no, before I go I, before I go to that side the side of uh, missionaries coming the tribalism was so was so unique and people shared the shared the shared uh, their uh, the shared their cultures among themselves but there were also tribals that were evil. For them, they were like, you know, it was about killing. It was about money. So I don't know if that kind of answer your question. But tribalism, to me, as, uh, as an inspiration artist, I always tell people, everyone in this world, you yourself, you know, like Aiden, you you have a tribe. And the tribe is you. So whatever you whatever you make, whatever you believe in, your tribe, which is which is your children, they will believe in. <clears throat> if you train them, if you don't let you when if you don't let the system teach them. So you, you can have your own tribe. And and the tri that tribe can grow into aiding tribe, and and to me that's that's one thing I learned I learned from tribal, you know, languages. Sometimes, you know, the the, the uh, I'm, a, I'm a I'm a I'm a a language lover. You know, I love languages. I can I can hear stuff when someone speaks in a different language without even understanding it what they say if you open up you know your, your spirit and listen to them you would understand what they mean that's amazing yes so tribal tribalism really is a to me i i define it in my own way i define tribalism as uh yourself knowing yourself and your belief <laughs> And what you want, uh, you know, what you want to conquer. Because when you think about the, the, the old school tribals, you they used to conquer. It can be, it can, it can be evil, but it's also survival. You know, I want, I want this. So you can, you can tell that this is this whatever we, we struggle with in in today's life. You know, it's it's most of it. Even when it comes, when if some when even when someone uh, attacks you uh, or offends you, most of the time it's they they're trying to protect themselves. You know, they're trying to build themselves. If it's their ego, if they whatever they believe in, <laughs> you know. So that's 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 the, that's my depth of tribalism.
I definitely appreciate the perspective. I think it's, I don't know, it's very nuanced. It, I guess it exists here in the U.S., but it's, I guess it's more discreet. In Africa, I guess how tribes manifest and, like, I think you also gave some interesting context to, like, the environment that they had to operate around. Some were focused on unity, some were focused on greed, so. Yeah, yeah. So, back to the language front. I know your music is in a multitude of languages. Like, you know, there's English, Kinyarwanda, Luganda, Zulu, Swahili. It's really, really cool. I guess, how did you go about developing your language skills and all of them, learning these different dialects? Which ones you were going to incorporate into your music? Uh, it's, it's, you know, that's, that's an interesting story. And to be, uh, to be honest, I find I communicate more better my music, my, my, with languages, I, I find that Zulu carries my messages, my message well, mm. even though I don't speak Zulu. So what I do, I, I, I get the words and get people to translate them for me. Okay. Why do you feel that way about Zulu? Uh, it's just, it's just uh, when I listen to the music without even understanding, it touches me, like it speaks to me. Mm. You know, it's, it's like, I, I believe, I always tell people, if there was no God, me, I would, I would worship music. Because it's, it's music that I run to when I'm when I'm sad. It's music I run to when I'm, you know, happy. It's music that I run to when, it's the music that I express myself. You know? And mm-hmm. and for people that, uh, that have maybe, you know, um, a Christian background, or you know that know about about the Bible, you'll find you'll find that even when when the Bible, or even Quran, you know all the holy books, when they talk about um, heaven, the only thing that's that that's in heaven is just singing, you know, praising. Twenty four hours. You know that's kind of uh, and 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 they say they say what what we call Satan today or Lucifer. You know he was an angel who used to sing, and he was ahead. Um, he was ahead of the the head of the angels because God loved to sing for him. Zulu can kind of carries that, like you know, like carries it, it like it carries my message. Zulu and, mm. and and Lingala. Okay. Yeah. By the way, I don't have I don't have uh, just in just you know I, I I used to speak about fourteen languages, and the more I grow, <laughs> I forget some of them until <coughs> unless if I meet someone who speaks the language and then it will come back. Okay. That's cool. But still, like having this, I only know English, so I'm just impressed that you even know more than one. <laughs> Nonetheless, having all of those like in your repertoire. So shifting over to the music career for a little bit, like, was there one defining moment that like developed this love for music, or was it just kind of gradually over time finding like this escape and this love and this passion in music? Uh I was, I would say. Music. I've, and I've known. I've known music from since uh, age of zero. Uh, I guess by the time I, I by the time I really listened to a, a sound, it was music. I grew up. I grew up in a Christian uh, family, and my dad used to sing a lot of hymns. 
and then I went to Sunday school, went to <laughs> went to elementary, and elementary, uh, you know, they forced me. I was one of those. I was I was stubborn in my elementary and junior high. But I, I, I would see people drumming and uh, the kids drumming and they're going for competition and I would just, when, when they finish drumming, I would just go and just do, you know, more than, more than what they're, what they're doing. And that's, and I think it was grade five, no, grade six. The music teacher was like, yo, did you go to this school? I'm like, yeah. And I was like, you're coming with us tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm like, do what? <laughs> And it's like, you just drum what you just did. I have a part for you. So we went on a, a school trip. It was competition. We were the, the third out of, uh, I think, 40, 40 schools. Oh, wow. That's good. Yeah. Then, uh, when, when, then in, uh, uh, junior high, I, became, I, I used to love, I used to listen to, uh, the dancehall, dancehall music. Like Buju Banton, Buju Badon, Sizzla, Karunji, Cal Capriton, Shabaranks. So I, I used to like those, uh, the MCing. So I would just uh, go in the clubs and just be an MCs, do, you know, sing lip sync on, on, on the songs and do some rapping and they'll pay me. I used to go, to, I, by then I, I was in a, in a boarding school, so they would pay me, I was, you know, I was financially well in, in my high school. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, but, but that led me into, it was nice, but it, that led me into dropping out of school. So it was a blessing, but also it was <laughs> a, a cause. <laughs> yeah. So, because uh, I had, had to kind of uh, pay the price you know, in the, uh, later, like 10 years later. And I was like, oh shit, if I didn't do this, now I have to do my English 12. Now I have to go back two years again for me to get my diploma. It is 97. That's, that's the year. That's the year I would, I would say when I got my, my next, my second favor, you joined a gospel choir and the second week they gave me to lead and i'm and i was like i have no even i don't even have, have no idea about the uh, about the key if i'm singing or if i'm on or off but somehow i was on and said taking piano lessons and 1999, that's when I chose, I was like, okay, that's the, this is my path for the rest of my life. I'm not looking back. I think a lot of people don't end up like really trying to live these creative paths. So kudos to you for that. You know, but it's, I, 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 at the same time, it's, it's not an easy one because, uh, you know, as, as you, you all know, the music industry, the the game, the game has changed the last the last ten years. You know, it's coming from oh, yes. but you know, selling stuff right now. Right now, like I'm trying to learn even about like on the online stuff. I never paid attention on selling my stuff on iTunes. I'll put it there, but you only get like, let's say in a in a in a month or two months, you get like twenty dollars check. 
Yeah. That's nothing. So I'm, you, you make more money when you when you do concerts and sell in person. So with me, that's how that's how I've survived. Also, also touring. But you have to be like you have to be. It's a, it's not an easy path because it's uh, it, you have to be committed. At the same time, you have to uh, you have to love it. You have to love it and put put the passion first. Then the rest, kind of the money, comes in. But you have to have this. Like right now, right now I'm working on my uh, West African album because I want I want to tap into the West Africa. Uh, and this album is for next year. But I'm stressed about writing, learning learning the languages Yoruba. And learning some French because Senegalese, Senegalese, they speak French, and and learning how to play the the style. So that's that's the uh, uh, that's that's the hard the hard part. People see the, the the part of the singing, the songs, the videos, but there's a lot of stuff behind that you have to really. You force yourself. You have to go through. The, you have to go through that to even be, you know, to have even such an, you know, an, an interview, you know. Yeah, I think people really underestimate what goes into like m- making music. Like, you need the producers, you need to write it, you need to make sure like the the translations are accurate. You need to distribute it everywhere. Have some good promo. You need to rehearse and you know, have your live performances together. Like, it's a lot of moving parts. So touching more on that, I know, like you said, you're touring a lot and your music experience has brought you really around the world. So I'm sure you've met many people from many countries and cultures, but I do want to ask, is there like a specific country or city that you performed in that like stuck out in particular that's like your favorite to perform in or like you've met very exciting people? Mm, I would say... I, th- I think, I think the, so far, so far it's, it's Vancouver. Okay. Uh, one of the reasons why I moved to Vancouver is, is I was I was looking for to see more of the world than you know traveling because I used I used to I used to travel a lot you know go to Sweden go to Denmark do all this like you know local festivals you know five hundred you know, five thousand people. Uh, London, South London, uh, uh, South London, uh, Scotland, but you, you kind of just you don't you don't see the whole world. You just only see this one culture. So when I moved to when I, when I, my 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 two country, my two cities were uh, uh, California, LA, or Vancouver. And I went to LA twice, and man, I was like, "Hell no!" <laughs> <laughs> was there any specifics about LA, or just, just you didn't like it? It was too too big for me, mm. bro. It was too big for me. It's like you come from two two lanes roads to eight lanes. Mm-hmm. 
I've never sweated in my in my in my hands like the, the time <laughs> I, I I sweated when I was driving in LA. Yeah, and LA is not like a walkable city. You have to drive everywhere. Like, I'm from New York, so it's like you can take some public transit. You can walk, but in LA, you have to drive 45 minutes just to do anything. I know. Now you can imagine if when you when you lose your when you lose your your exit. <laughs> oh yeah. You, you I, I don't drive. drive. I don't know. <laughs> That was to me. That was like like a, one of my culture shocks. I was like, how mm. like even everything, everything is big, and it's uh, you know it's like it's a it's to me it was a I felt like a a, a child, you know. Then I tried I tried Miami, and Miami was uh, was a bit too much for me. It can be exciting. Yeah, Miami, Miami will be uh, Miami will be. It would be good for me if I was like eight, uh, 16, 17. You know, you have to. Yeah, that makes you sense. Have, you have to have that mindset. <laughs> you know, but uh, Vancouver, Vancouver is kind of a, a, a multicultural city, and there's a lot of uh, there's lots to learn. You know, in, in, just in one place. So so far, Vancouver has been one of uh, I performed with uh, you know some legends from uh, Uganda like Jose Chameleon, who was like my mentor. Like I grew up, you know, liking him. And all of a sudden, we were sharing we are sharing a, a stage. Like Jose Chameleon is kind of like a Michael Jackson in in Uganda. Oh, so with me com- him coming here and, and my band plays for him. And he asked me to sing with him on on, on in his set. That was a big thing. Uh, then I've I've, been, I've, I've met uh, uh, Ziggy Mali, Demi Mali, all in Vancouver. I've met. Uh, I've done a, I've done a, a tour with Fakka Tule, which is a, is a big legend from Mali. Uh, uh Faka Tule and then I've done I've done I've done I've played on the same stage with uh uh one of the greatest uh South African um artist legend uh Oliver Mtukuzi is from Zimbabwe with with him I knew, I knew, I knew about the songs, and 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 and, and when he performed, I was like, oh, "Man, this guy is singing all of them to Kuzi's songs." And until we, until we, until he left, and someone was like, "That was all of them to Kuzi. I'm like, "No, that guy is huge. He he can be just by himself singing, you know, on on his, on his acoustic. He has he, this guy plays stadiums." <laughs> So Vancouver still is one of my best, and then uh, of course Rwanda because Rwanda that's where I started with the music. I'm one of I'm one of the guys after the genocide who opened who had a sold out show, and um, uh, which which led me to opening up the first studio in Rwanda. You know, after the genocide, the studio, the the recording studio they had was, you know, was owned by the government. So my my studio was with the first private. Oh wow! Congrats, that's major. 
you go about like setting that up was it i guess difficult was it something that you were determined to do or did you just need the studio space and everything kind of fell in line uh you know when when uh, like like when when you when you when you travel i always encourage people to travel because when you travel you never know sometimes we, we focus on where we are and we think that's where our blessings are but when you the, the one of the beauty of traveling is you get blessings it can be in in tangible blessings or wisdom you get you get you get smart the first time i moved to the us that's i was like I, that's that's the first time I, i learned about home studios and i was like man people have this in that like in their basements i'm like this is this is huge like this is this is better than the the registration that the government has <laughs> you know it's like i never it's like i was like this is this is not a home studio and and, and it would be like a teenager playing on it and i was like man this is if i if i would get this this is it so i told a friend of mine in in, uh, in alabama mobile that's the first place i went to when i moved to when i visited the us so he got me a, 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 a computer that, that was my first computer in my mm. entire life uh, my, my, a microphone and a sound card and he taught me how to use it so I started recording, recording my home studio, and I was, I was, I was like, man, I don't want to sh- show people about this. But I started sharing with a few friends, and I'll bring them. I'm like, yo, you look at this. I can record myself. <laughs> <laughs> so they will get excited, and they would, they would tell the other person. So the rumor went around. And they're like, and Ezra, please, you know, when you need to record, you know, in the, I'll pay you. So I started as a home studio. Then I was like, you know what? I'm making more, I'm making money out of this. Uh, but then I was, a, I mean, I was a music teacher in a, in a, in an international school. So I gave up on the job. The job was paying me $300 a month. And I started making $300 in two days or, in five days you know yeah that, recording. that's and, an easy decision yeah and i was and, uh, and i was like i was like oh i used to think uh 300 was a lot but and um, and and what was oh that's nothing then i said my mindset started changing to 300 to uh, 3000 i'm like oh that's nothing oh 3000 to 10000 i'm like oh so I kind of, you know, that's how I started the, the other, uh, this other side of my, my business, you know, just by looking at the small, as, as something that one looks at it as need this, it does no value. It's, it's a home studio. And to me, the home studio was, uh, you know, a dream. So off of sort of, you mentioned going to Mobile, Alabama, like first, I guess, what drew you to that city first? Was it like a connection that you had or a performance that you had or like, did you hear about something with it? Yeah. Like I said, I, I used to, I used to, I, I used to live, uh, I used to be the music director in an Anglican church in Rwanda. 
And I met I met a singer from Alabama. They were kind of missionaries, and we connected. So he, he invited me hmm. to Alabama, and that was my first experience of uh, even learning to learn about uh, racism in North America. Mm-hmm. I had no idea ab- about it. About it, I knew about slaves, slavery. You know, but still, that that kind of stuff, st- you know, it kind of still happens in Africa. Yeah, uh, there's still slavery. So, but to really learn about the whole white and black slavery, it was until I. Uh, I, I, you know, found myself in the middle of it, and this, this, the, my, my horse was was white. This is what happened. <laughs> uh, you, you, because, uh, like, uh, I don't know if you know Alabama very well, but there's, there's a, uh, uh, a, I don't know if it's a town or it's in a neighborhood. It's called Spanish. Mm-hmm. Spanish is, you know, it's full of like rich white, you know, people, folks, and okay, this this was this this was my my introduction. We'll come from the airport, go to the house, and the first thing that comes running to me is a tiny dog. Oh. A tiny dog yapping and yapping at me, and I'm like, uh, uh, I'm scared of dogs, but this small one, uh, I'm not running away from this one. I kick, you know, she, she came and like kind of got my pants, and I kicked it off. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny story. And the 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 owner, the the wife. You remember? You remember? I'm, I'm friends with the with the man. Mm-hmm. You know. Now this is the first time I'm meeting. I'm meeting the wife, and that's what that that happens. And the dog, you know, cries, and she picks up the dog. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. And my friend, so I'm having a conversation with my friend. Oh, thanks, you no, know, thanks for blah 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 for having you know, for having me for the invitation. Blah blah. I'm excited. And the woman is not talking to me. She goes, they go, they go in the room. I was like, he just kicked my baby. I'm like, no, I didn't. Kick, I, didn't I didn't kick your baby. I'm like, just, were, you very, were you confused? It was like, I was conscious not a thing. Yeah, I was like, I just kicked the dog. I'm like, oh man, I'm like, well, shit. Maybe that's a baby. <laughs> a baby that looks like a dog. <laughs> so the the yeah, then the, you know they kind of had, had a, they had a talk and they were like, okay, sure, blah blah blah. <laughs> Uh, two days later, you know, and I, I get used to the dog. I'm like, oh, and, and then my friend tells me, this is a chihuahua. This dog, these dogs are called chihuahua. <laughs> no one. I'm like, then she's like, she's, uh, she's like seven years. I'm like, oh, 
I thought she's a puppy. That's <laughs> <laughs> not a baby. And then and I was like, oh, and like, and I ended up my first week. I ended up liking the dog. The dog, we became buddies. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And then and then, my other thing that happened that week was the neighbors. They my my friend, you know, he had to go to work, and his wife and the kids had to go to school. So there's a black guy in the house. So I go for a walk and they can and I come in. The next thing, the the I, the police calls. I'm like, hello. Of course. Yeah, they call and I'm like, hello. Uh, and who is this? I'm like, I'm Ezra. I'm like, uh, wait, so and so. I'm like, they're not here. I'm a guest. And then they're like, okay, can, can you do? You know, a guest from where? I'm, I'm, I'm from Africa. So I'm explaining, but I don't understand why. Then I go, I go out. That day goes by, and in the morning I tell, I tell my host, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Yesterday, I mean, at breakfast, I, I tell him, oh, by the way, yesterday, the police called. And then his wife got an email, like, oh, are you guys okay? We saw a black guy, in, you know. <laughs> Oh God! In, in in your house, and these these are like these are like kind of uh, these are Christians, mm. you know. So, but still, I I, I still up to up to this moment, and up to that moment, I have no idea what's going on. I'm like, this is America, <laughs> and this is the this is the culture. I'm like, oh, the police they just call. Like for what? You know, I have no crew. Then on Sunday, I had to perform, talk about my, my, I had an, uh, then I had an orphanage back home, you know, shared, shared my, my vision, blah, 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 raised some funds, some donations. And then months, a month later, that's when I was like, oh, this was racism because people mm-hmm. would, people people would talk about racism and I'm like, what do you mean racism? And I was like, oh, this is oh so and so. That's why people were looking at me in the in the window. That's why people would cross the road and go on the other side. And with me, I'm busy smiling. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyways, <laughs> that's a long story to go into. <laughs> I, I mean, but it's just the truth of like being black in America, like in the South and back when you, you were there. You know, and, and, and also one of the things we, we, I did my first trip, my, actually my second trip, one of the things I did was to go to see, uh, to go into... To be taken by uh, my my horse, who are white for white uh, a white organization, to take me to a black community to go and paint houses, mm. and we you sit in these sessions where they teach the the white man is teaching the white kid child, let's go and help these poor people, and 
one of and 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 I came I, I came I, I went back with a really confused mind because we went to the uh, to the black neighborhoods and I, was, I saw like 45 40 45 years old men still living with their mothers and they still have their pants down and I was like I'm like man if my grandfather was here, was here, he would, you know, you know, grandfathers they walk with a cane. They will cane you, and they where they where they hit, you can you can you know they know they knew where to hit to make you weak. <laughs> so I'll be like, if my grandfather was here, he would hit this one and that one and that one, <laughs> and and the whole you know because you know in in, in Africa. Even, even like, and I had to learn about this when I moved here. To be fat is to is that's that's being rich. When you're skinny, that means you have no food. So I was like, man, it's, it's like I would see. I was so confused because I was like, like white people they're skinny, and all my brothers and my sisters, they can't even breathe. They can they take like two steps and like. And I'm like, and I'm like, okay, I'm like, there's something wrong here, you know. And it was, it was interest, it was an interesting, uh, interesting experience because they never even, they didn't, they didn't talk to me. I was like, hey, brother, I'm like, yo, what's up? <laughs> and I'm like, being loved by white people, you know. And, and so, with me as an African, it was a kind of a, you know, a confusion. And then I had to now relearn and go deep on, okay, why is my brother acting this way? Why is he still living with the mother? And that that's another t stuff that I can I can talk to about about like trauma and you know. Uh, Things that we carry on, you know, thinking, you know how the things that we, we have to. As as a, a child who was born in the ghetto, I, you know, I, I chose I chose the forgiving side. I, I chose the loving side. I, for, I, for, I chose the freedom, you know. Mm -hmm. I chose happiness instead of anger, you know. And and I had to. That that made me learn more about uh, slavery. How it was even harder in, in the in the South, Mississippi. I had to learn about uh, New New Orleans, all those places, because of what what I saw my second uh, my second in my second visit. I was like, why this guy is smart? This why why is you know he's forty five, so. I, I could I could tell the pain in the mother. I could tell the pain in the grandmother, and I, I could tell I could tell how you look at it, and I'm like, you know what? This is this is this is this is all of us. You know, it, it's, it's like it's in in it's in us, but we choose. We choose. To, we, we you can either choose to be depressed or you choose to be happy. To be happy, you have to, you know, there's there's a path that you have to take. To be depressed, there's also a path that you have to take.
you know, finding yourself in, you know, isolating yourself, finding yourself, you know, uh, escaping into drugs, uh, alcohol, and other stuff. Those are signs of, you know, depression. So, me seeing that that whole picture, that whole picture about uh, the picture of uh, the my brothers, my sisters, and they even feeling the pain. He taught me about always to share, share to share about not giving up. You know, not giving, not giving up, no matter no matter what uh, situation you're in. You know, you can you can give up. I think spreading that inspiration is like very important. Like spreading that hope and that messaging. I guess ties into my next question. I wanted to ask you more about your nonprofit, Narrow Road. I think it's a cool mission, but I guess what inspired this whole initiative and some of the programs that you run? Uh, what inspired Narrow Road is uh, was when I moved to Rwanda. You know, when uh, like I said in the beginning, when where 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 when when there's more than uh, when you lose a mil a million people, what what's what stays behind? Is the orphans, you know? That, that now you're talking about thousands, thousands of orphans, and that was the first thing that I saw when I went to Rwanda. I was like, "There's a lot. There were a lot of street kids, and some street kids they had they had parents, but they were poor, so they the parents they would send would send them on the street, or they would send them to an orphanage." So with me, I saw I saw this I saw myself in these kids, and most especially uh, the teenagers, because everyone who came to help, the helping you know under ten, but then how about this kid who's been you know he, uh, he's fourteen you know seventeen, he lost everyone you know he's still a kid in his in his mind. And then I had had chances of you know meeting, hearing cases of uh, orphans being raped, you know, being raped by neighbors, being raped by you know the uh, the so-called foster uh, uh, parents, and that's kind of what what draw me towards you know, most especially. Uh, single mothers who you know were like were like under eighteen, and uh, working with uh, young men who have no no you know they never had a chance to go to school and trying to mentor them and say okay what are you good at? I always give them a, I always give them an example of my myself. I'm like I had to choose music because I'm I'm you know I'm good at it. But I have, yes, even though I still have to learn when, when it comes to different styles, but I know I'm good at it and I'm happy about it. So I kind of mentor them towards that, towards what are you good at? Uh, how can, how can I help you? You know, so that's how, that's how I, I, I started it. 
and I called I called it narrow road because it, it, it's, it's one of the my, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. <laughs> Talks about how the narrow road can take you too far, but the wide road, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you can you can you, you can you, you, in the wide road you can you can you, you can see most of the time you you see the end of it. You can say, okay, man, now I'm done. But the narrow road, you just have to focus where you step. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of, it's kind of, uh, you just have to go by faith. That's a perfect name for the organization. <laughs> so are you having any challenges with COVID recently and like, you know, administering everything and like, just like supporting your programs? So much so much because you know with the covid covid really hit it really hit so hard and when it's a small organization it's like we weren't ready for it and when we thought it's going to be a, like a, a two uh two month thing or three months so this there's a lot of there's a lot of suffering but uh at but somehow we we you know we're still surviving. Of course, in like in Rwanda, the 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 kids that were were in boarding, they had to stay in the boarding. Those who are doing day school, that would stay at home for the whole year. So it kind of affected the whole the whole country, not just. The, the, uh, my clients or the people I work with is like it, it affected everyone so we're just kind of working with what what, what we can afford and what, working with what we, you know we can uh, what we're working with what we have so far okay. yeah you can do but hopefully things will pick up as the situation with COVID gets better but I imagine that like the day students are having difficulties with just having all of their supplies and all of the things that they need. Uh, right, right now the biggest, the biggest, uh, the biggest problem is uh, is food. Mm. Yeah, right now is the biggest problem they have is food. And I, I usually, I usually do what, I, what I do the way I, I raise, I raise my, uh, my, uh, the funds and for the organization is that uh, when I do my, my, my tour. Like last year, last year I had a six months planned tour across Canada, and when when COVID hit, I started getting emails. Ezram's, we sorry, you know, we have to cancel because of this and this. Mm-hmm. We sorry, 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 sorry. I only had like like three or four down payments, which was nothing. So, but I'm, I'm uh, but I'm, 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 I know, I'm not, I'm not, compl- I'm not complaining. There's, there's also another, you know, there's, there's some uh, good strategies that, like, I learned out of, out of COVID. It's so good to see that, like, process is moving with the, you know, music career and with the organization and, you know, little steps. And I hope that you'll be able to achieve more in the coming year. Thanks, uh, thanks, and uh, you know, um, whoever is listening, they should you know go on and uh, buy my new album. I have my new album called Ezra Quizera. Uh, 
it's it's on uh i make more money when you buy it on band mm-hmm. Bandcamp. if have you heard of Bandcamp? I, I i've heard of it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so when you go on Bandcamp, i have like three albums on it okay. and that money comes straight in my account when you buy stuff on itunes the money goes straight <laughs> to them to apple <laughs> Out of out of at three hundred dollars, you'll make like thirty cents. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Apple, Apple definitely will take their cut. <laughs> yeah. So I was. What about? Are you on Spotify? I am. I am. I'm on it, but nice. you know, that's, that's what Spotify. They gain you. You as an as an artist, you don't gain anything. Mm. Yeah, you just gain people to know. Okay, I know this guy. Yeah, okay, so it's just like brand building, not actual revenue. All right, so as we're coming up at the end of the interview, we're going to get to a little more some retrospective questions. So I do want to ask, what advice would you give to a young person in similar shoes that you were to, like, you know, when you were younger, moving from country to country, experiencing such hardships? The one thing I would tell them, which is hard to believe, is that there's beauty there's beauty in that ugliness. There's beauty in, in that, you know, when you're down in that situation, you have to look at the beauty side, the beautiful side of it. And the beauty, uh, the beautiful side of it is you, you have to take advantage of it and learn. <clears throat> and, but to, to learn also, you have to really, like I always, like I said earlier, you have to really know what you're good at. You have to know what's your art. Are you good at speaking? Learn anything about speaking. Are you good at singing? Do that. Are you good at making stuff? Start making them. Are you good at painting? Start doing it because all all the stuff that you need, they're in front of you. Mm-hmm. The in front of you. It's not about the money. So all the stuff you need, you it's it's around you. Yeah, yeah. And 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 you have to have the spirit of not giving up. As long as you can see the morning coming and the evening going, just keep focused, steady, focused, and be good at your art, and the rest will come. Whatever we whatever we need, money, fame, and anything you want, you can get it. Very well said. I think that's good advice for anyone. But coming up on the last question, which is a staple that I ask every guest who comes on the podcast, but is your migration journey over? Is Vancouver home for good, or do you want to eventually live and retire in Rwanda or like a potentially another country? That's a, that's a that's a really Tough question. If you ask me this, I think if you ask if you ask me the same question in, in three years, I'll give you I give you a different answer. <laughs> but my my uh, I find I'm more, I'm more, I'm a free spirit. I hate being in one place. Mm-hmm. And right now I have I have two boys. Yeah, 13, 13 and eight and nine. <clears throat> and Vancouver has been their home. 
and Rwanda is still my home. It's my dream childhood, you know, country. I want to die in Rwanda. I want to be buried in Rwanda. You know, everything. Like I'm, but also I, I but also I'm, I love, I love traveling. I'm a traveler. So I've come to a place where I can, I kind of, um, I, I try, I train my mind, and my, and my home is in my heart. Okay. Yeah. I think a lot of people have that sentiment that they want to go home and like back to their roots, but they also want to see what the world has to offer. So it's like, that's a very tough question. It's a tough one because your your home. There's so there's so there's so much there's so much in this in this world, and and that's why that's why if people really get to really understand that. I always have this analogy, anal analogy that uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a philosopher at the same time. So I have this philosophy that if if they ask me if they ask me who is Aiden, right? The first thing is there is a black guy that comes to me, you know, being Jamaica, being a, a black American, I'll be oh black guy but you're not even black <laughs> you know the color black is this black and then this <laughs> so so that shows you that's in in a in a, in a small in like easy words like that it shows you that aiden is a spirit mm -hmm. you know so if we de attach ourselves if we separate those two then you know and say okay ezra is a spirit if ezra dies and he goes, and then my body is somewhere. People say, "Oh, that's Ezra's body, right?" So it's Ezra. Ezra already already left. So if people really tune in with the with themselves, like the spirit, stuff like racism will never occur, because then you you won't you won't see the you won't see the color of the skin. When you listen, when you when you hear the accent, you won't say, "Where are you from?" You will just hear beauty. You will just hear art. Like, oh, you sound beautiful. You know, this sounds amazing. You know. Anyways, I just wanted to share that before. <laughs> no, that was well put. I think people really do need to get past that base level of interaction when they get to know people and really see people for who they are and like, like like you said see their souls thank you so much for coming on ezra it was great hearing your story i learned a lot just on your perspective on life and what you've gone through but do you have anything that you want to plug or promote i know the band camp link so definitely look it up ezra quizera on Bandcamp. is there anything else you want to uh, also sub uh, subscribe on youtube i really i'm really um I'm, I really suck at promoting myself. <laughs> no, it's hard. I, I know. I'm, I'm getting better. <laughs> uh, subscribe on my YouTube, leave a comment, and subscribe on my uh, Instagram. I'm, I'm, I'm so active on Instagram. And I, sh I share some of those uh, short messages that I, when I wake up in the morning, how do you want to... What do you do when you wake up in the morning and you're grumpy? What do you do when you wake up in the morning and you have no work? What do you do when you wake up in the morning and you had a fight with your wife? 
so I have, I have those uh, kind of small messages that I, I post here and there, you know, but most especially on, on Instagram. Follow me on Instagram. Follow me on uh, on on YouTube and subscribe and leave a comment. Hey everyone, definitely check him out. Instagram, Ezra Quizara underscore music. Check out the YouTube channel. Thank you so much. And then my my website also is Ezra Ezra dot ca. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. God bless. That was amazing. And thank you so much for sticking through that and getting to the end of the interview here with me. Ezra definitely dropped some wisdom and some bombs. And I really, you know, always appreciate having a bit of an older guest who has lived through some of this history and you know, has really experienced a very dynamic life to, you know, really reflect on their migration story and really tell something great to you guys, the listeners, and, you know, inform all of us in our educational knowledge about Rwanda. And make sure you check out more of his music where you can find him, Bandcamp, Spotify, Ezra Quizera. And while, you know, you're following people, giving them some love, make sure you follow this podcast, The Push Pull Factor, wherever you get your favorite podcast, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, you know the deal. Make sure you check us out on Instagram at Push Pull Factor. Check out our website, pushpullfactor.com. Rate us five stars. Leave us a genuine, honest review. Whatever you need to do. It's been great. I'm glad to have you guys back. We have a lot of exciting guests lined up and a lot of exciting stories to tell. So until next time, and of course, have a great one.